right. So good evening or good night. Um, I'm always saying good morning because I'm just so used to doing church on Sundays in the morning. So uh, I'm trying to get out of that habit. But um, I'm really excited to get into this text in Hosea. Um, this is the culmination, if you don't know, the, of the narrative we've been following so far in the first few chapters of the book. Uh, chapter one starts off with this really weird command by God for Hosea, his prophet, to go marry someone who is an adulteress, someone who he knew would go and become unfaithful to him in the future. And so this is a really weird command, but it's going to start to draw out this narrative that Hosea is going to, through his life, live out the adultery that Israel is committing to God by the nature of the adultery that his wife will commit towards him. And he has children with this woman. He lives life with her. And then what we saw last week in chapter two is Gomer, his wife, was put on trial. And there were several accusations that God had towards the people of Israel and that Hosea had against Gomer. And it's kind of weird to tell which is Hosea and which one is God, but they're all kind of layered together. And within those uh, different accusations, you got three judgments that were uh, levied against the people. Uh, They're found in the text in chapter two in the three therefores that you see. There's one in verse six, one in verse nine, and one in verse 14. And these three therefores are the three judgments are going to be played out against the people of Israel. And we're going to see each of these come to pass uh, in the future and in the rest of the book. But today, the section that we're in is focusing on that third and final judgment, that third and final therefore, which is specifically God's not judgment, not his condemnation, not his removal of blessings, but rather the mercy of God towards his people. That is the third and final judgment that Hosea is going to give to Gomer and that God will give to his people. One truth that consistently uh, surprises me uh, about scripture is the mercy of God. When I was growing up in church, I was never amazed or I was never dumbfounded or I was never confused by the wrath of God or his judgment. It seems right and fair and good that a holy God who was wronged by sinful man would have judgment or vindication or vengeance on those people. When you start out reading the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, You get the story of God who creates the heavens and the earth and everything was perfect and it was beautiful and he creates everything perfect and he says it is all good. And then he creates man and he creates man perfect and he gives man a wife and he creates them and they're perfect and they're bound together in matrimony. And then you get man and the distortion of that creation. Man in outright rebellion towards God. And although God said, these people, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. When they do eat from the tree, which they do, they don't die. They are not killed immediately, which always surprised me about that in the story because it seems as though God is being inconsistent to his own word. And what's interesting here in the text is it's not the wrath of God that drives the people towards repentance and ultimately back towards him. It's not him protecting them or preventing them from sin that ultimately drives them back towards him and back towards obedience. It is actually the mercy of God and his love towards his people that's going to drive them back into union, back into relationship, back into obedience with him. This is something that is a truth in scripture that I've struggled to wrap my head around. Sometimes it angers me at, uh, at night when I'm thinking about this and how I am the person who was rebellious against God and he showed that love and that grace to me. And it would make sense for him to be judgmental towards me. It would make sense that he has wrath or vengeance against me but it almost makes no sense towards me how he would have mercy on me, especially when I continue to fail and when I continue to screw up. And I'm reminded of the fact that he is merciful, he is loving, and he is gracious. 
And these two attributes of God seem always to be at ends with one another, that they often don't make sense when you try to piece them together. How could God be both judgmental and wrathful and just against sin? How can he punish iniquity, but also pass over iniquity and have mercy as well? God's judgment makes sense, but his mercy does not make sense. And as we encounter this final conclusion of the story of Hosea, which we're going to see now in chapter 3, after we get through the first bit in chapter 2, we get the full narrative of Hosea that's actually concluding the book. So we're going to get the finishing touches of the story right now, and the next, 14, the next chapters, 4 through 14, next ten, ta- 10 chapters of this book, are all going to be about the specific oracles that Hosea has against the people of Israel and that God has against the people of Israel. But we get to conclude the story here, and we get to see fully painted out the explicit, the illogical, uh, the non-just mercy of God on his people. The punishment on Israel will eventually not lead them back to God, but it's rather the mercy of God that leads them back, and it's the mercy of Hosea that brings him back into relationship with Gomer. As you read throughout all of the Old Testament, we know the truth of the situation as that humanity is in outright rebellion against God. But the church, I find in our day, is often asking the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? Or why would a loving God not just dismiss sin? As in other religions, the God will dismiss sin. That if your good outweighs your bad, he'll dismiss the bad, he'll take the good, and he'll let you into heaven. But we know that God, in the Old Testament specifically, is vengeful and just at many different points in time. And so it's difficult to understand how sometimes there's justice and sometimes there's mercy, and how often it's, uh, it's hard to understand which way God is acting and how he's going to behave in certain ways. And so we're going to get to explore how that is going to play out today in Hosea and Gomer's relationship. But first, we're going to start with the bigger overview, which is the relationship between God and Israel. So if you'll read with me in verse 16 of the text, it says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. uh, The other translation reads, my master. Uh, Baal and master, that's just a translation uh, difference. In the NIV, even with the names of the children, as you guys have seen before, instead of uh, no mercy, it'll say lo ruma, or instead of not my people, it'll say lo amai. Uh, in this case, it says, my Baal in the ESV, but in the NIV, it will say, my master. That's just a direct translation as opposed to keeping the uh, original language in the text in the, in the English. Um, one of the first things you notice in verse 16 is that it says, and in that day declares the Lord. Now, we have to back up here for a second and keep in mind the context in which we're coming from. In verse 14, we see the therefore, And the therefore is that final judgment. He says, therefore, I will allure her. I will speak tenderly to her in the wilderness. And the therefore is talking about the in that day. So this final judgment is going to come upon the people of Israel at some future point in time. In fact, in this text and in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 5, you get in that day, on that day. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, you get the phrasing in the latter days. These are words and phrases that have to do with the end times, the final consummation of all the history of the world. And so that is what he's talking about in this moment, the final marriage relationship between God and his people. And in that day has this picture that gets painted of the restoration not only of God and his relationship with his people, but also the restoration of creation to God 
and the relationship and uh, restoration of people's relationships towards one another. And the first thing that happens in that day is the Lord says, you will call me my husband. No longer are you going to worship the false gods or the Baals that you have been worshiping. You see, the sin that Gomer was guilty of was the sin of adultery. As we see in chapters 2 and chapter 1 is that sin of adultery that gets played out by Gomer is the sin of idolatry that Israel commits with other gods, the local deities of the pagan religion, which in this case is the god Baal. And so Baal is a god that the Israelites would have worshipped. And God says that in that day when you call me my husband, when I betroth you to me once again, I'm going to cast out the name of the Baals from your lips. There is only one husband for the people of Israel, and it is Yahweh, the covenant revealed God. There is only one name under heaven by which we are to be saved. There's not multiple ways to God. There's not multiple ways to worship him. There's not multiple avenues into heaven. There is only one God, one husband, one Lord over all the people. So in verse 17, it continues, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. The name of Yahweh and his restoration of the people drives out the names of the Baal from the people of Israel. And by extension, when we are converted to faith in Christ, by calling God our Lord, by calling him our husband, he drives out the false idols, the false gods that we had once had worshipped in our previous lives, in our unfaithfulness, and our rebellion towards him. This is the fruit of repentance, or in other words, the turning away from sin that we experience in the new birth. As a Christian, when you go and you are allured by God, you're taken into the wilderness, you're restored by him, and he weds you to himself, he puts something in you that makes you different than when you first went out there. You don't return back the same. You can't become Christian and be unchanged. You can't be converted to faith in Christ and look the same as you did before you were converted to Christ. There's a different spirit within you. There's a different will within you. There's a different passion within you. There's a different zeal for God. The zeal for God and his passion is so consuming that it drives out the worship of any false deity, any false God. And slowly and surely over time as you walk out the Christian life, that only gets a deeper and deeper grip upon your soul and upon your body and upon every avenue of your life. We allow ourselves to be transformed by God as Israel rightly does in this relationship. They allow the names of the Baals to be driven out from their lips in worship for the sake of worshiping the one true God. In our new nature, we look different than we did before. In our new nature, we act different than we did before. We think different, we desire differently. Because God, as we learn in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, is a consuming fire and a jealous God. Now, what's interesting about this consuming fire, every time it's a reference in the Old Testament, it's always referenced in relation to the enemies of Israel, that God is going to go before them as a consuming fire and wipe out these other peoples. But in the New Testament, we come to find out that really we are the enemies of God. And our sin is at enmity with him. And we are in outright rebellion against the creator of the universe. And so if God's consuming fire went out against his enemies in that day, and it's going to still go out against his enemies today because God is unchanging yesterday, today, and forever, that means the consuming fire was at one point in time aimed at you and me. And so how does the consuming fire affect us when we're born again in Christ, when we are once again restored into right relationship with him? Well, the consuming fire, which would have previously destroyed the enemies of God, which it will one day, 
For those of us who are in Christ, the consuming fire destroys the parts of our life, our flesh, that are at outright rebellion with God. Paul talks about this as the wrestling between the flesh and the spirit. That the things in us that are not in alignment with God, God is slowly but surely consuming. And so what that looks like as we grow in holiness, as we grow in sanctification, is God demands everything from us. He demands our gifts. So if he's given you a gift to do something for him, whether that is a talent, whether that is a hobby, whether that is something you've turned into a career, he's going to demand that you do that thing for his glory. Your time and how you use it is accountable to God. Because when he saved you, he didn't save you for yourself, he saved you to be his bride. Which means that as he is a consuming fire, he will eventually consume the use of your time. Now that doesn't mean you spend all day reading scripture, that's not what we see in the Old Testament, that's not what we see in the New Testament. What it means is whatever you do with your time is accountable to God. So when you work a job, when you work a career, in your relationships, everything you do with your time is accountable to God and your use of that time. If you sleep in, John Wesley preached an entire sermon about the use of your time and how rising early in the morning is the duty of a Christian. It's an interesting sermon, I highly recommend it. If you have talents and treasures that God has given you, gifts and abilities and things that he's given you, you are responsible to use those things appropriately for the glory of God. We have worship teams at church who use their talents of musical worship for the glory of God. We have people who can write amazing and articulate blogs and they use those gifts for the glory of God. And we have people who have treasures from their jobs or treasures from a career that they have built on the skills that they have been given and they use those treasures for the glory of God, sometimes in tithe, but often, as we are doing uh, in December, is going on a Samaritan's Purse trip where you pay out of your own pocket to go use your time for the glory of God. Your work and your job is for the glory of God, which means you don't do God in the morning and then you leave to go to work and do work in the rest of your day and then in the evening you spend time with friends. It is all things that you have to dedicate to God because remember, he's a consuming fire He is a jealous God. He is jealous for your time. He is jealous for your things. He is jealous for your affections. He demands everything, which extends even into our mind. The use of your mind, the use of your thoughts, the use of your affections, what you think about, what you meditate on, is accountable to the Lord. And as he transforms you in holiness, you start to think more about the things of God, and you start to meditate more on the things of God, and you start to love the things of God, because he's going to transform not only your mind, but also your heart and your will and he's going to conform that into his image because we present our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is our spiritual worship as Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and not only that but he's going to demand your life as well and he demanded the lives of many martyrs in the early church he demanded the lives of many missionaries even in our day and he demands even in our American culture where we demand our own lives and we demand our own success and we demand our own identity and future God demands our identity and our future and our life. The use of your life is accountable to God on the last day. He demands everything because remember, God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. And when he says, you will call me my husband, by definition, that drives out relationships with anything else that could hold that affection. When you make a marriage covenant with someone, it is an exclusive covenant that extends from you to that person and from that person back to you. It is exclusive. 
in that you say yes to someone, you say no to everyone else who could have potentially held that spot. And so when God says, you call me my husband, that means you're not calling anyone else my husband. And what that means, because it's weird language that we're not used to, is it means when you say, I have your affections, I am your Lord, I am your husband, that I demand everything. And I am exclusively in that role. So you can't worship anyone else. You can't have affection for anyone else. You can't love yourself because you have to love me. You can't love Baal because you have to worship me. God is a consuming fire. And his jealous love for Israel is what actually drives him to go to the wilderness and to pursue her and to draw her back into himself. And so then this promise that God will restore Israel back is going to continue on in verse 18. And here's where you get this second phrase of on that day. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. In the Old Testament, a covenant in Hebrew comes from a verb which means to cut. This is the Hebrew word for covenant. And what's interesting about that is you get this account in Genesis chapter 15 when God makes his covenant with Abraham is there's a very peculiar thing that has to happen for the covenant to be ratified. Abraham has to bring in some animals and what happens is they cut the animals directly in half and they split them on both sides. And what would happen in a covenant is you would have both parties who were agreeing to the terms and conditions of the covenant would split these animals in half and they would walk through the midst of the animals that had been split in half. And what they are saying in effect by their actions is that if any of us were to break the terms and conditions of this covenant, so be it done to us as well. And so this verb continues in the New Testament when we talk about covenants and the covenant that God is faithful to. What's interesting about that is for a covenant to be ratified, there has to be a sacrificial offering that is made for the covenant to be validated. When the covenant is broken, it demands the payment of blood. The covenant being broken demanded the payment of blood. And so here when God makes a new covenant with us, he has to do so by first creating a sacrifice. The covenant is always in the presence of a sacrifice. And so here the new covenant brings restoration of God, restoration of God's people to himself, restoration of all creation back to him. You'll see that it says that he will make a covenant with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. What's interesting about that is that all creation is in disorder by sin. That sin didn't just affect human beings in the fall, it affected all of creation. That because of sin, death entered in. And death doesn't just affect people, it affects every single living thing on this earth. And the, the, the fall and sin have broken the creation order, they've broken the Garden of Eden, and now everything is in disarray. And animals are a threat to us, the reason why we need to build houses and we need to build shelters is because animals are dangerous and we have poisonous snakes and things that can eat us and predators that are larger than us. And they are an outright rebellion against us and threats to us because we rebelled against their maker. And so on that last day when God renews his covenant with us, he's going to say all those creepy things, all those poisonous things, all of those apex predators, I'm going to bring them into submission and peace. And in fact, I'm going to allow you to lie down in safety, which is an ultimate promise at that time when Israel was plagued by war on all sides. In fact, with Assyria, the imminent threat of them coming and conquering Israel, the, the promise of safety and being able to lie down in safety or lie down without any cares and concerns is a wonderful promise. And for us, we can 
lie down in safety and sleep comfortably in safety because God has given us particular blessings in this day and age where we can live our lives and we can go to work and we can sit in our comfortable cars because God has blessed us in a peculiar way. Not ultimately, but in a common grace extension of that gift to people today. But this is clearly depicting a future day because we know that even today when we experience a relative amount of comfort and security, that in that verse where it says, I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, we know that all throughout human history, there has been war. Even today there is war. The United States is currently at war. We know that at probably as long as humans exist in our broken state, that there will be war. And so this is clearly not talking about today. This is clearly talking about a future day that is yet to be realized and yet to come. And we're going to talk more about that when we get to chapter 3, verse 5. But in verse 19, he's going to continue this uh, promise. And this is God talking here. And he says in verse 19, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So the first thing that's interesting about this is the language of betrothal. Now, we often could equate this to the language of engagement today, but it's not quite a good one-to-one because of our Western culture. You see, a betrothal in the Hebrew context would have been more akin to an engagement, but an engagement that was legally seen under the law as already considered a marriage. To end a betrothal in that day, you had to write a certificate of divorce. And so when Mary is betrothed to Joseph in the New Testament, when Joseph considers breaking off that betrothal, it would have been equivalent to him giving Mary a divorce. And so this betrothal language is actually much more intimate, much more deep, much more legally binding than the language of an engagement. And so God says that I will betroth you to me forever. Now, what's interesting about the language of betrothal is the marriage doesn't have to be consummated for the betrothal to be valid. And so this leads us to this interesting period in history, which we already live in as Christians, which is considered like the already and not yet of the kingdom of God, which means the betrothal has already been promised. The bride price has already been paid, but the marriage and the supper of the lamb has not yet been consummated fully and finally on the last day in which that will occur. But he has betrothed himself to us forever. And even in our marriage vows today, we say things like, until death do us part, that this marriage covenant is valid until death will finally separate us. But God doesn't die and we are resurrected on the last day. So death is not going to be the thing that ends that covenant. That covenant will continue for all of eternity. He says forever. And that is fitting for God to say because he is forever. And the other thing that he says here is, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. But as I was talking about earlier, that that is quite a contradiction if you start to think about it too hard. That it's not really possible for God to both be fully just and fully merciful. Or in other words, how is it possible for God to both be fully just and fully merciful? Because when God says he's righteous and he's just, justice demands that all things that are executed against God, all things that are in rebellion towards God, must be rightfully punished. If a just judge exists in the land, he's going to punish people who break the law. And God has a specific law as outlined in the Ten Commandments, as outlined in the Abrahamic Covenant, as outlined in the Garden of Eden. He has a specific law. But what happens is when people break that law, God often won't punish them for it. 
And so how could God be just if he doesn't punish people for them breaking the law? How could God be merciful if he forgoes justice for some? For by being merciful, he is by definition forgoing justice. But does he just dismiss it? The covenantal love of God is in the Old Testament referred to as chesed, which is the Hebrew word for that covenantal love. In this English translation, it gets translated as steadfast love, but this is God rooting his mercy in the covenant. So again, there's a covenant that is existing and God is rooting his love in that. In this case, it's referring to the Mosaic or the Abrahamic covenant. It's going to remind the people of Israel about those covenants back in the day, that God is remaining faithful to them. But the answer to the question of how is it possible for God to both be fully just and fully merciful is you have to look at the picture of the cross where justice was fully executed perfectly on Jesus for the sins that you and I have committed and then the mercy is turned around and extended towards us. You see, God can't forgo the punishment of sins. He will by no means not punish the guilty, but he does, for some reason, allow us to spend eternity with him, and he actually offers a real forgiveness for sins. And if he does both of those things, it means that there must have been a payment for the sins that were committed. And so you have to look to the cross to answer the question of how could God be both fully just and merciful to some? The cross paints us a picture of both the perfect justice and the perfect mercy of God, where he's executing justice on himself, and he's executing then mercy to us. And this language of betrothal, again, is important because it paints the picture of what's called a bride price. In that culture, when you wanted to marry someone, you had to pay a certain cost to the husband or the father, or to the father of that person in order to become their husband. So when God is going to marry himself back to us or back to Israel, he says he will betroth us to us and this is the bride price in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. And the last part of that bride price comes in verse 20 when he says, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Faithfulness is the portion here that is pretty shocking if you start to think about it because the whole story that we're in right now is a a wife that has been characteristically unfaithful in the past. Gomer has been unfaithful to Hosea. Israel has been unfaithful to Yahweh. And what's interesting, again, in a marriage relationship is that both parties have to say the covenantal vows. So not only is God saying he will betroth us to him in his own faithfulness, but he's also saying that we have to betroth him in faithfulness. But how is that possible if Israel is characteristically unfaithful? How can God say that this marriage is going to last forever if he has to betroth us to him in faithfulness? Or by extension, in the New Testament, in the church, how can God say he's going to betroth us to him in faithfulness, that we are going to be faithful to God if we know that characteristically we are prone to wander, prone to stray, prone to leave the God that we love? The faithfulness is quite a concerning thing until you've realized that God is the one who's going to ensure that the faithfulness is carried out. God not only marries us to him in his own faithfulness, but he says in the book of Jeremiah that he's going to put his spirit within us and he's going to cause us to walk in his statutes and be faithful to him. When he draws Israel out into the wilderness and he whispers to her and he speaks tenderly to her, he's doing this in order to transform her in such a way where she will be different when she comes back. He changes us in such a way that when he puts his new spirit within us, our desires, our hearts, our lives will be different and we will desire to be faithful towards the Lord. If you'll turn with me to a parallel passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, 
we get this same new covenantal language. Jeremiah chapter 31, and we're going to read verse 31 to 33. So it starts in verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, and that's that last day's language. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now keep your finger there in the text in Jeremiah. He says, if you go up a few verses, he says, I will put my law within them. You see, in the Old Testament covenant, God on the law of Moses, he gives them the law on stones, on stone tablets, externally. But in this new covenant, he says he's not going to write the law on stone tablets. He's going to write it on their hearts. And he's not going to give it to them on stone tablets. He's going to give it to them within themselves. And so in this new covenant, God is going to create faithfulness within the people that did not exist before he wrote that covenantal law within them. And so keep your finger there and we're going to flip back to Hosea and we're going to come right back to that same passage in just a minute. But he says in verse 20, not only will I betroth you to me in faithfulness, that is that both you and I will be faithful. And then he says, and you shall know the Lord. That Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, is Yahweh when it's translated into the English. And you shall know Yahweh, your God, or your covenant God. Israel is going to know their covenant God. And the implication here is that they did not previously know the Lord their God. And so flip back then to Jeremiah 31, 34, and you're going to get a parallel statement. And he says in verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see, this is a parallel account that both the prophet Jeremiah and Hosea, and they're talking about the same topic, the same idea, that to know the Lord is to be intimately aware of him. You see that in Genesis, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore him a son. This is the language that God is using to talk about his relationship with his people. Previously, the Jewish people did not know God That is the implication here when he says, and you shall know the Lord your God. But then as we see in Jeremiah, not only does he say, you shall know the Lord your God, but he says that each and every single one of them shall know the Lord their God. And they won't have to turn to one another and say, know God, because they will each independently know him. This is talking about a future time in history when every single person will be part of the family of God, not by heritage, not by bloodline, but by redeeming birth by the Spirit of God. Notice, this is not just knowing about God. Knowing God is not simply limited to head knowledge. It is at least that much, though. Often when we come to church, we want to turn off our brains and turn on our hearts and turn on our faith and not bring our minds to the Word. God demands our minds. He says, you need to know me, which at least means you need to know about him about his character, about his nature, about who he is, about what he likes, about what he wants you to do to worship him. 
You have to know God and who he is. But secondly, it's not, it's not just that, right? You can't just know academic things about God and know God. In fact, the Jewish people have all of the oracles of God up until this point in time, and he says to them, you do not know me, and you shall know me at some point in the future. So we have to bring our minds to God when we worship him, but it's more than that. We bring, as I said before, our whole lives to God. That is truly knowing the Lord. You see, uh, Max had a great analogy a few weeks ago where he said you can, uh, you can know about honey. You can describe it. You can, you can talk about it. You can say how much sugar it has in it. You can try to describe the taste, but no one's going to know what honey tastes like unless they experience it for themselves. And in the same way, you can't know God until you experience him for yourself. There's a level of knowing that's academic, but there's a deeper level of knowing that is not only academic, but it's also more intimate. And so the people of God need to know the Lord. And so then this is going to burst into a picture of the covenant and what it's going to look like when Israel is showered again with the blessings of the Lord. In verse 21 through 23, there's not really a good reason why there's verse breaks there. It really should just read as all one stanza. And so I'm going to read it as all one stanza. And he says, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he shall say, You are my God. The intimate knowledge and worship of God, the knowing of God, and our betrothal to him eventually leads us to these covenantal blessings, which God now outlines. This blessing is a picture of what we would call the full agricultural cycle. So for a, for a society that was based on the seasons, they needed things like this as a sign of blessing. So God is going to give them, he's going to talk to the heavens, the heavens are going to rain down to the earth. He's going to talk to the earth, the earth is going to answer the heavens and they're going to grow crops. And the earth is going to produce grain, wine, and oil. And the grain and the wine and the oil are all symbols of the splendor and the blessing and the majesty of God. In the New Testament, we get a story of Jesus where he has to turn wine, water into wine at a wedding feast. And he doesn't just turn one thing of water into wine. He produces a lot more wine than they could have drank and a lot better wine than they had to drink. God is a splendid and abundant God who produces bountifully for his people. He gives us better than we deserve. He doesn't just give us mercy. He gives us grace as well, and he heaps grace upon us. And then you get this interesting language, and again, this is a poetic format, so there's some interesting things that are happening here. The first is the name Jezreel. Now, if you'll remember to Hosea chapter 1, Jezreel is the name of the first child that Hosea and Gomer have together. In fact, it's likely the only child that was actually Hosea's kid. But he names this first child Jezreel, which is the symbol of the coming judgment that God is going to have on Israel. But Jezreel, as I mentioned before, is a play on the word Israel. In Hebrew, Israel is Yisrael and Jezreel is Yisrael. So the language is poetic. It's a, it's a play on words. It's, it's a like-sounding phrase that he's going to use. And here he says, and they shall answer Jezreel, which is not only in reference to the child, but also in reference to the people of Israel in the poetic connotation that it's in. And Jezreel also has a third interesting connotation, which is that it means to sow. And so God is saying here, he's going to talk to the heavens and to the earth, and then they're going to produce bountiful things from the earth. 
And then he's going to talk to Jezreel, Israel, which means to sow. And then he continues and he says, and I will sow for her, her for myself in the land. And so he's going to plant not only crops, but he's also going to plant people and establish people in the land. And then he's going to reverse all of the other curses that he's made. Not only the curse on Jezreel, but he's going to reverse the curse on no mercy and say he will have mercy on her. And he's going to reverse the curse on not my people and say that you, in fact, are my people. And you will say that you are my God. The response back to God is a fitting response given the blessings that he has now showered them with. But remember, this is talking eschatologically about a future time. For Israel, this time is not yet to be realized. And so we're going to go back into the story, back into the on-the-ground context in which Israel finds themselves in here, which is unfortunately not in as splendid of a location. So in chapter 3, verse 1, the story is going to continue. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. The present condition that we find ourselves in is in extremely sharp contrast to the promises that were just laid out. The present condition is not at all like the promises that were just made. Now, it's worth academically to talk about this. Gomer is not potentially the same woman who he's going to go and remarry. I think that it is still Gomer, but there is a debate out there. It's an in-house debate whether this woman is Gomer or not. We're going to assume for the sake of this time that she is. We're not going to get into that right now. If you have questions, just ask. Okay? But we're going to assume it's Gomer. So when he says, go again, love a woman, he's talking about Gomer, his previous unfaithful, adulterous wife. And Gomer at this point in time is loved by another man. The Israelites at this time were worshiping other gods. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and they love cakes of raisins. You see, cakes of raisins, this is worth saying before we get into any more of this. Cakes of raisins is a really weird reference. It's translated all different ways through all different English translations. It is likely some food that they consumed in their Canaanite prostitution cult ritual in order to worship Baal. I'm not going to get into it any more than that. But the commandment here is to go again and love the adulterous woman, Gomer. And it says that the parallel is even as the Lord God loves the children of Israel, though they worship other gods. This is again painting a picture of the state that Israel is in, right? We just looked into the future, but we're zooming back into the present, the broken condition that Israel finds themselves in. It is not because of Israel's fantastic track record or because of their current great nature that God is going to choose to go back and love them. It is not because Gomer has turned her life around that Hosea is going to go back and remarry her. He's going to go back and remarry her while she is currently with another man. He chooses to redeem Gomer, not because of her, but because he was commanded by God to do so. God does not choose to redeem Israel because they are the best pick of the bunch. He chooses to redeem Israel because he wants to. He chooses to redeem you and me, not because we're the best, not because we are the, the most holy people on earth, but we are the ungodly people. And God chooses to save us because of his own counsel, and his own will. His love is exclusive for his chosen bride. Hosea does not get sent out to go get any other woman out there. He doesn't marry a lot of women. He doesn't remarry many women. He remarries one woman, Gomer. God redeems himself to one people, Israel. 
The love is exclusive, it's targeted, and it's direct. And so then we continue in verse 2, where it says, So I bought her, and this is Hosea talking about purchasing Gomer, his wife. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a leketh of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also be to you, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince or without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. There's two scenarios in which could have happened right now. Hosea is commanded to go love his wife again, to go back and remarry her. And so now we we are left with the the next sentence or the next statement in verse 2, which says, so I bought her for 15 shekels and some barley. Which means that at this point in time, Gomer's prostitution, Gomer's adultery has left her in the condition where she is enslaved or owned by someone else. So there's two things that could have happened. One is there is a current lover who she is with that is essentially her pimp. And he's the one who's kind of taking care of her. He's taken her in, but she is owned by him. And so Hosea has to go and find his wife and negotiate a price with this person and then he can buy his wife back. And this might have been the agreed upon price. The other thing that could have happened is that at this point in time, Gomer is just on sale at an auction someplace and Hosea finds this auction and he has to auction against other people for his own wife. Which means that the auction price for Gomer was 15 shekels and some barley. In the Deuteronomy text, this is happening in Israel, so this law would have applied. That's about half the price that a regular slave was worth. Half the price of what a regular slave was worth. And you can imagine that if Hosea had the full price to pay for her, he probably would have just paid all in cash, right? He would have paid with all shekels, right? He wouldn't have had other odds and ends. But what this is probably telling us is that Hosea had to go buy Gomer and he didn't actually have enough money to make ends meet. So he's going to get back everything that he has and he's just going to drag it all forward and he's going to be like, hey, this is what I got. Can I please have my wife? He goes and gets his adulterous, rebellious, and unfaithful wife at great personal expense to himself. He's going to buy her with everything that he's got. Everything he has left to sell and to barter, he's going to make sure he gets his wife back. And so this is the sad condition that Gomer finds herself in. This picture of the the poor selling price of Gomer is a picture of the abject poverty that Gomer was in at the point in time at which he is purchased back by Hosea. And this, again, as God says uh, by extension, uh, when he says that you're going to go love her just as I, the Lord, love the people of Israel, God is by extension talking about how the people of Israel are in abject spiritual poverty. And when he redeems them, they are still in that condition. They are not in a great condition when he goes and gets them. So Hosea gets her back, and he gets her back for everything that he's got. And this leads us to what we would call the doctrine of the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement is this theological idea that has to do with how God purchases sinful people back to himself. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the greatest questions in theology is not why is God just, but why is God merciful? Because his mercy doesn't make sense. But the nature of the atonement starts to paint a picture for us and how God can both be just and merciful. On the cross, what was happening when God purchased us back to himself? We know a few things just based on the book of Hosea. One is that there was a debt that was owed. 
there's a debt that was owed. Hosea has to go get Gomer and he has to pay a price to get his wife back. God, when he betroths the people of Israel, has to betroth them for a bride price. There is a debt that is owed when the relationship has to be restored, when he has to purchase them back to himself. The second thing that we know is it is a legal transaction, which means it is final once it's completed. Once the transaction of purchasing those people back to themselves happens, they can't switch hands anymore. The payment has been made, the, the, the transaction has been done, and now Hosea has possession of his wife, Gomer, again. She's not up for sale anymore. He's made the purchase. He's redeemed her to himself. In the same way, when Christ dies for sinners on the cross and he purchases us back to himself, once that payment has been made on the cross, it is said and it is done. When Jesus makes that payment, there's no going back. There's no us trading hands anymore. There's no us going from death to life and back to death. When you move from death to life, you stay there. Christ is the one who pays the price. So although Hosea in this context is the one who's purchasing Gomer, we know that on the atonement, it was Jesus Christ who by his blood paid the ransom for many people. Now, one of the questions that is often asked is, who is the ransom paid to? In this case, Hosea has to pay the ransom to some other person for his own wife. And this is where in this text, the analogy kind of starts to fail when we're talking about the atonement. The ransom for us being purchased back into the kingdom of God, back into the kingdom of light, is not paid to Satan. It's not like Satan has a hold on us and then God has to go barter and get us back from Satan. Okay? The purchase or the, the payment that happens on the cross is paid actually to God. Because the bride price, when the husband has to marry the father, or when the husband has to negotiate with the father, the bride price is paid to the father. And the father of God's people is God. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, he pays the bride price to God. And the wrath of God, which is aimed at the people who are in rebellion against God, is paid for by Jesus to the father. So it is God's wrath who is satisfied on the cross. It is God who the payment is made to. It is God who we are ransomed from and into relationship just as it would be with God, from God. God is both merciful and he is loving, but he cannot clear sin. He is not so merciful and so loving that he can just look the other way with sin. Because God is, as R.C. Sproul says, fully holy and fully righteous. And so the primary question is, is the atonement necessary? Absolutely. Because primarily of who God is and primarily because of who we are. If God is holy, then we, if we commit one sin against him, are deserving of death. So the atonement is absolutely necessary because God can't just turn his back on sin because he is perfectly holy. We are not worshiping Allah who says that if, you are, if your good outweighs your bad, then you can be entered into heaven. He doesn't turn the other way and clear sin. He has to punish sin because of his nature, because he is righteous, because he is just. Not only can he, but he must because of his nature. And then it continues then in verse three. And he says, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So also I will be to you. And after Gomer is redeemed, she is commanded by Hosea to remain celibate for a time. A time for her to heal from her life of adultery, which she has been currently going in for quite some time. But also Israel, by extension of this prophecy, is going to be drawn into exile. 
they're going to be conquered by Assyria and they're going to be pulled away from their homeland, pulled away from the land that God has promised to them, and they're going to be celibate for a time, which means they're not going to be able to worship either Yahweh or Baal. They're going to have to be celibate. And then this prophecy continues in verse 4 when he explains this, and he says, For the children of Israel shall dwell for many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, and without ephod or household gods. So these are the things that is removed from Israel's ability to worship. So the first thing that is being stripped away from them in their celibacy, in their exile, is a king or a prince. They're not going to have governmental autonomy anymore. They're going to be enslaved by the Assyrians. That's the first thing that's going to happen. The second uh, pairing is without sacrifice or pillar. These are both things that would have been sacred rites used in the worship of Baal. So the very first thing here is sacrifice, which means likely sacrifices to Baal. And the second thing is a pillar, which would have been used in Baal cult worship. And so the sacred rites and ceremonies that we've used to worship Baal is also going to be stripped away from them. So this is part of their celibacy, part of their exile. And then the third pairing, which is the ephod or the household gods, these are ways in which the Israelites would have tried to commune with God through these mediums. The first one is actually given by God. The ephod is something that the Levitical priest would have used to see what God was thinking. So in this case, the ephod is something that God now has to take away from them their ability to interact with him. But more so than that, the household gods was another way in which people would pray to these things to try to get to Yahweh. And he says, I'm going to take those away too because that is an abomination, that is an abuse of worship of me. So he takes away all these things from them for some time during their exile or as it is by the extension in Gomer and Hosea's case, they're going to remain celibate, which means they're betrothed once again to one another, but they have not yet consummated that relationship at least for a time. And so then the final layer of those things is that we as well as Christians are living in this case in which we have been bought, we have been purchased, but we have not yet consummated that marriage relationship. And then we get verse 5 of this chapter 3 where it says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and shall seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord, to his goodness in the latter days. Ultimately, the children of Israel are going to seek the Lord their God. Ultimately, they're going to look to David as their king. Ultimately, they're going to fear the Lord and they're going to worship him for his goodness and his justice. And the the time constraint we get on that is in the latter days. Uh, as fate would have it, uh, while I was preparing the sermon, I also was looking at Luke chapter 24, verse 27, where Jesus on the road to Emmaus goes on to explain that all of the scriptures and all the prophecies actually talk about him. And when Hosea says that they're going to seek David, their king, they're actually talking about Jesus, who stands in the lineage of David, who is one day going to be the king over not only Israel, but also by extension, all children of the promise. And then we get this beautiful picture in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. And I will just read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Revelation 19, 6 and 7. And this is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says, And then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So this is in the last days talking about what is actually going to happen when the marriage is finally going to be consummated. It's going to be celebrated, and then in the last days, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is going to take away the sins of the world, is going to be the husband 
to his bride, the church, and the people of the promise who have been redeemed to him. So although God has wrath and although God has justice, it is actually the mercy of God which drives us back towards him. It drives us back to relationship. It drives us back into worship. It drives us back into obedience. It is his love that draws us back into repentance. And there's this beautiful hymn that was written by a slave trader, as it would be, uh, called Amazing Grace. And in that hymn, we get this stanza that talks about exactly that same truth. And the stanza goes like this. It says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed." We should not too soon or too quickly forget the grace that God has had on us. You see, when you become a Christian, when you are bought again, and when you become aware of the fact that Jesus has purchased you unto himself, the grace is overwhelming. It brings you to your knees. It brings you to worship. It brings you to obedience. It brings you to love. It brings you to passion. But oftentimes we can forget after a time of that grace and the truth and the gravity of what actually took place. And so by way of reminder, all we do on Sunday and all we do when we look at the word of God is we remind ourselves of the grace that he once showed us. That that grace was for a real punishment that we were really going to get. We were really on the way to hell and we were really going to face the wrath of God. But God in his grace and in his mercy showed love to us and had compassion on us and he paid the price for us. Not because we were significant in any way, not because we were beautiful or particularly lovely, but because he loved us and because it was in his wisdom that he does these things, he pays us back to himself. And so this is how Jesus purchases us back into himself. He purchases us with great personal cost to himself back into relationship with God. And so this is going to lead us into a time of communion. Okay? We have the privilege today of taking communion uh, and you should have these plastic cups and wafers and things like that. Um, thanks. And communion is really a time for us to reflect and confess our sin. It's a time for us to reflect on ultimately what Jesus did on the cross, ultimately the payment that he made for us on our behalf, ultimately what God has done to redeem us back into himself. And there's two elements to any communion service. The first is the bread, which is this little plastic wafer on top. It has this little thin plastic wrapper that you... I really struggle to peel off. Um, that is the bread. And the bread is representative of the body of Christ. And Jesus says that when you eat the body, remember that it is my body which is broken for you. Jesus' body was broken on the cross. And this is a picture of the justice of God which is fully realized in Christ. And the second element is the juice, which is the blood of Christ. And the, the blood of Christ is ultimately poured out on our behalf on the cross. And this is a picture of that covenant that Abraham made with God originally, which is that if the violation of the covenant occurs, so be it to the violating party. And God actually makes Jesus the person who pays the punishment for the broken covenant. That Jesus is pour out, pours out his blood in the same way that those animals' blood was spilled in order to make sure that we would not be subject to that same punishment. And so these are the two elements. So what I want us to do for about a minute is just to reflect and pray Take this time to confess sin and meditate on the truth and then we will take the elements together.